My name is Jess Fairfax. It's 2020 and it's been one hell of a year. The bushfire crisis plaguing much of the country south. An emergency warning is already in place for the town of Kabul. The massive bushfire that tore through here on Friday has now created a fire edge from north to south, almost straight down the centre of Kangaroo Island. Prepare for severe to extreme fire danger tomorrow. Everything is so dry here and it's been drying out for, you know, two years. So it's very volatile and unprecedented. 25 people are known to have died, including three volunteer firefighters. Around 1,900 homes have been completely destroyed and up to 500 million animals have been killed with fears some species may have been wiped out. The past few months alone, both Sydney and Canberra have recorded worse air pollution levels than places like Beijing and Delhi. This month alone, there's been around 50% spike in the number of respiratory illness-related call-outs. We are living in uncharted territory when it comes to these pollution levels. Breaking news in the CBD where thousands of climate change protesters are gathered and ready to march. January, I walked heavy-hearted, claustrophobic as smoke filled a city that once believed in immortality. I worried for the trees, for the atmosphere, for the koalas and their burnt paws, the birds without homes and the communities stranded on incandescent beaches. The bushfires that burnt so intensely were making their own microclimates, explosions, lives lost, crops decimated, empty hotels. Luke Skinner is the Secretary of the Climate Justice Union of WA. He was involved in a program that reached out to 12,000 people who were affected by the latest fires to understand how they'd been impacted and what they felt they needed to recover. What we found was people were very resilient, but they were also very worried about the economic impact on their communities in the longer term and the medium term and the viability of their communities as a result of you know, the likelihood of more of these kind of fires and also as, as a likelihood of the droughts continuing, particularly around areas where there are agricultural communities and dairy farms that require a lot of water and a lot of grass uh, and a lot of input that comes from mostly from rain that has not been around. So you've got a lot of worry about the economic viability of places that are dependent upon tourism but also places that are dependent upon water and the water system. We're getting less consistent weather patterns. We're getting more extreme weather. So when we do get rain, we're getting floods that strip the soil rather than saturate it. And when you have fires come through, it tears the soil apart and then rain comes through and there's nothing to hold the soil together. There was definitely a high level of anxiety in the community about how they survive as things get hotter. If you're getting fires now at one degree Celsius, what does it look like at two degrees Celsius? What if the droughts look like? Is it possible to have a dairy industry in some of those areas that are considered permanent dairy, alpine, beautiful, wet, moist, high altitude areas? But now we just saw them all burn, you know? Peter Holding is a farmer and an outreach officer for Farmers for Climate Action. He's very familiar with how the changing climate is impacting on agriculture and Australia's food security. He works with farmers to provide information, tools and strategies that they can use to manage and adapt to climate change. I'm a farmer, have been all my life. Um, my name is Peter Holden and I live in Arden on the south of the New South Wales. We run a mixed farm, it grows canola, wheat, lupins, whatever sort of winter cereals. It's a winter cropping area. We run merino sheep, 
and we produce lambs. That's been changing pretty obviously, I think, the last 20 years. In 98, we had a really late frost, and then we went into millennial drought, and then we've had more droughts. <laughs> and, so, and so it's pretty obvious that the springs have disappeared, so we don't get a spring much anymore. We've been able to still grow crops in this area most of the time. It's definitely getting hotter and it's definitely getting drier and the storms are getting more intense. It decimates the livelihood, like it basically means we live in a permanent drought. I suspect the drought is broken that we're having at the moment. What I don't expect is that it won't be back very short. I think it'll come back next year. Mm. So that's kind of um, a bit depressing. With the debt levels at the moment, the, the added burden of climate change can be a very difficult thing to get your head around because it probably means you'll lose your farm. I think from when I started doing this, there's probably about half the farming community now accept climate change as a re reality. There's still a lot of questions on what we do about it now. Climate change is not confined to the boundaries of wilderness. It permeates into our food systems, our health, our communities, our livelihoods and our economy. Emma Heard is the CEO of the Investors Group on Climate Change, representing institutional investors and helping them to understand the economic risk of climate change. Up until now, in terms of the national discussion in Australia, we've always tended to have this conversation around the cost of climate change being entirely framed as a hit to GDP growth, which is this kind of an all-encompassing macro measure but doesn't really tell you what you need to know as an investor around what it will mean for different industry sectors or, or different assets in different parts of the country. So I think what we're seeing is that while the national debate is stuck in this macro um, high level discussion around cost, the finance sector has been building a bottom up approach and, and often in partnership with companies looking at the individual costs of climate change. And when you look at that kind of analysis, increasingly what you see is that it's to everybody's benefit to be avoiding the worst effects of climate change from a straight up and down economic and a cost perspective. Climate is such a massive issue, right? It's, it's an environmental issue, it's a social issue, and it's an economic issue. And, you know, as, as investors, we come into the debate, we enter the debate from that perspective of how do you translate climate science and environmental issue into the economic and the financial impact. Just imagine how we would have dealt with the bushfires of January at the same time as the COVID crisis. And you begin to see how climate makes everything harder. And if we're not actually reducing climate risk, we're just ratcheting up and compounding these sorts of massive economic events as we see them. The sound you're hearing is sonified climate data. The pitch of the tone represents CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, while the pitch and intensity of the plucked strings represent temperature average. These last 15 seconds are from 1970 to 2016. The data's been trying to tell us for years that global temperatures are increasing because of human activity. But it was not until the fires of 2020 that many of us really understood the impacts of a warming planet on the environment, society and the economy. And then... There are now more new cases of coronavirus being reported outside China for the first time. It's now May, and I've been cooped up in this makeshift studio for almost three months. It's where I study, work, watch lectures, zoom in and out of engagements. 
I miss the incidental conversations that don't fit into the schedule. But for now, this will do. Outside, a virus is threatening our lives, our loves and the orthodox. I worry for the ill, for the unemployed, for those struggling to pay rent, pay staff, stay afloat. I worry for the trees and for the atmosphere, for the koalas and their burnt paws as government find ways to bounce back. The country is facing a two-year coronavirus hangover and the biggest deficit in our nation's history. Around the world, economies are crumbling. This year will be the worst for the global economy since the Great Depression. The uh, International Monetary Fund is expecting the Australian economy to shrink by almost 7% this year. It means that close to one and a half million people will be out of a job. Coronavirus job keeper and seeker programs to blast a $143 billion hole in the budget bottom line. 7.6 million Australians are now receiving government support. That's more than half the workforce. COVID-19 will leave deep wounds in our environment, society and economy. The bushfires and droughts, floods and storms will become more frequent and intense as global temperatures rise. Those wounds of COVID will struggle to heal. They will multiply. But do these unprecedented times provide an unprecedented opportunity to challenge the status quo, bounce forward and not back, transforming a fossil fuel-powered economy into a renewable-led, low-carbon economy? Can we heal the wounds of COVID while addressing climate change? Can we feed two birds with one scone? We have a once-in-a-century moment to rethink and renew. So what could a low-carbon economy look like? And is it really a viable option for recovery in an economy with over one million people unemployed? Petra Stock is a project manager at ClimateWorks, a not-for-profit organisation who advises businesses and government on ways they can get to zero emissions. They've just released a report titled Decarbonisation Futures that looks at every sector of the economy and what technologies exist to get emissions close to zero. She explains. Decarbonisation Futures looks at every sector of the economy and it's broken down into electricity, buildings, transport, industry, land. And so in each of those sectors, we looked for what technologies are available to reduce emissions and how developed are those technologies. In electricity, we know we already have all the technologies we need to get to a zero emissions electricity sector. Renewable energy technologies, solar and wind, energy storage technologies, batteries or pumped hydro, public transport, walking, cycling, electric cars, buses and trucks are very mature technologies which are being rolled out around the world. Zero emission buildings, carbon positive buildings, which actually generate more renewable energy than they're using inside the building. Buildings is another sector where we can get to zero emissions, particularly for new construction, and then think about retrofitting existing building stock. It makes me feel happy and warm and cozy in the garden. I see bumblebees taking the pudding. There's studies to show that new renewable energy creates more jobs than fossil fuels, and we also happen to know that new renewable energy is cheaper than new fossil fuels. So 
that's a great example where building new solar plants, new wind plants and other forms of renewable energy is a great way to create jobs. There's research of the US stimulus from 2009 that showed that investing in sustainable transport like public transport, also maintenance, created more jobs per dollar than equivalent spending in roads. Those are just two examples of sectors where there are solutions um, ready to roll which create more jobs than the polluting alternatives. Sometimes I even talk to the butterflies. I can speak butterfly by finger. With different movements in your fingers, you can talk to them. Green hydrogen is one area which is storing renewable energy as hydrogen and that allows you to ship basically our sun and wind overseas to other countries that don't have as much access to those resources. That's a huge potential area for Australia to grow a whole new industry that Australia can then export its renewables to the world. There's, there's bees that live next, next door and we've got some honey that those bees made. It's really yummy honey. What we know is that many of the solutions that we found in decarbonisation futures are also shown to be mature technologies that can be rolled out today. That means that when governments like the federal government or state governments are looking for opportunities to stimulate the economy after this crisis, they can look at those solutions that are ready to roll out I met one of the bees the other day. He introduced me to some of his family members. They came to have a little visit at, in the garden. I went and talked to them and had a little journey. Even though states and territories all have this net zero emissions goal, they haven't yet put that into their infrastructure decision making. And that'll be really important because we know that spending on infrastructure is one of the key ways that governments look to stimulate the economy. If they do that, then some forms of infrastructure might then be prioritised over others, things like urban green space. What's really needed is for zero emissions to be embedded into those infrastructure decisions so that what we're building today will really help us get to zero emissions in 2050. You know, there's no reason why we can't walk and chew gum at the same time here. And if anything, um, we absolutely have to be to avoid even more future costs in terms of the impact for Australia's infrastructure uh, from climate change. I see the trees blowing in the wind. And I see the, I see the leaves dancing around. There are also less techno-optimistic strategies that could be adopted as an integral part of a low-carbon economy. Now, whilst we have a farm and we've got weed on it, we also have a lot of biodiversity. In, in, you know, like I've got birds here that come out of the mountains, I guess some of them, because of the fires, but they've still got a place to live here. And we need to look after that. We don't want to lose all our, our nutty wildlife. I think the Australian public are prepared to pay to look after that sort of thing. So we need to come up with some sort of eco-services where we, we pay some farmers to stay on their farms, maybe reduce their stocking rate, maybe even put in trees and create better habitat and, and to store carbon at the same time. But just generally to make the whole ecosystem work better. And, and, and many of the farmers would be quite happy to do that, I think. Make sure the feral animals don't get out of control and look after the water courses and do whatever it takes to, to make 
the place look better because I don't know a farmer that doesn't want to make their farm better than what they got it from before. Sometimes I even give it to the butterflies. I can speak butterfly by finger. You've outlined that the technologies exist and that they're ready to roll. You've stated that they have a potential to employ a large number of people. So it seems like a win-win situation. But there still seems to be so much ambivalence. Do you think this is because we're scared of the unknown? Transitioning to renewable energy, there's states like the ACT, which have already done it. They're at 100% renewables. Tasmania is pretty close and is actually now aiming to reach 200% renewables. South Australia's well on the way. And a lot of that transition has happened in a relatively short space of time. So we're making strong steps. I think it's likely that that transition will continue. It's just will it happen rapidly enough at the right scale to reduce emissions by as much as we need. I think that's what decarbonisation futures tells us is that even though we're on the right track, we really need to scale up our efforts in order to cut emissions and get to net zero. We're all connected by the national electricity grid. So some states like Queensland have a great solar resource that they can definitely make use of. Other states have greater wind resource or the opportunity to store energy in hydro dams or in big batteries. We can all share um, and make the most of all the great resources that Australia has access to. Do you think that we're scared of change? Most farmers have been adapting for as long as they've been farming. We're making changes. The problem is we need to make bigger changes. If we stop using fossil fuels, I don't see any problem with running battery-powered tractors or maybe hydrogen-powered. Or... And the other thing that can happen is we can go to a more drone technology, smaller units, so instead of having a, a huge boom spray, we might go back to the tiny little machinery and just go around and seek out individual weeds. It's not impossible to change the system. It's getting harder to change as, as the viability of the system decreases. It gives you less capacity to invest in new, new technology. So that's another reason why we need to get on and make these changes faster. We have precedence. Change is a constant. Much of our ambivalence to move towards a renewable-led economy is due to the fact that the fossil fuel lobbyists are loud. Nev Powell was appointed chairman of the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, a task force equipped with designing our economic recovery post-COVID. He was recently forced to step aside from his position as deputy chairman of a gas company, following the leak report recommending Australian taxpayers underwrite a massive expansion of the domestic gas industry as a post-COVID recovery strategy. The federal government's COVID Recovery Commission heavy with gas industry players, including Chairman Neb Power, is pushing a gas-led manufacturing recovery. In leaked reports obtained by the ABC, it's urging massive taxpayer subsidies for the gas industry, with government underwriting new gas supply projects with government balance sheets, providing support such as low-cost capital to gas companies, and scrapping all moratoria on new gas development. Vested interests mean that the government is pushing for a gas-led recovery, despite the known impacts of coal seam gas on agriculture, groundwater and greenhouse gas emissions. And as Luke Skinner explains, 
it may not even be the most economically viable option. The gas industry particularly though actually isn't collapse at the moment. I mean Woodside, who is the biggest player in our gas industry in WA, 45-50% of it dropped in a one-month period when the oil price collapsed. Uh, so there is actually quite an opportunity right now in this moment to be pushing for alternative industries that are not going to end up stranded assets the way a lot of those fossil fuel massive projects look like they could become. But the fossil fuel voices are strong and they have history on their side. A fossil fuel-powered mining boom following the 2008 GFC did bring down our debt and helped us to mitigate a global crisis. So why shouldn't we turn to what we know and what we know works? We're in a very different place in terms of our understanding of climate impacts and their economic implications than we were in the mid-2000s. You know, we actually have a much deeper and more sophisticated understanding of these, these systemic financial and economic risks presented by climate change. Uh, and the fact that we need to be reducing our emissions to avoid much worse financial risks from climate change and its impact. What's also different since the mid-2000s is that technology costs have changed substantially. Understanding of pathways forward has changed substantially. So it's not a cookie-cutter approach. We don't just do exactly what we did with the GFC. We actually have to look at a range of different options. And they, these options need to be including a focus on climate impact and measures about how we increase the resilience of our economy and our community, not just to pandemics, but also to the increasing risk of climate change itself. For change to happen, we need to amplify alternative voices. Emma Heard believes investors have a role to play. Within Australia, um, famously, we've had a very difficult climate change debate. So what we tend to see is that actually more often than not, it's investors who are putting pressure on or, or actively engaging with companies to proactively adopt a climate change response, despite having weaker policy signals in many ways. And again, that's because they're looking long term, because they're looking at what's happening across the whole global industry sector and they're saying, you know, as shareholders in your company, we expect you to be looking at and responding to those bigger picture signals and not just taking a least cost or least compliance type approach to managing for climate change. Australian investors have been very influential in encouraging and influencing and pushing companies to do more on climate change than what they are technically required under our regulatory regime. Investors like banks in particular are starting to look at where they put their money and starting to think about how that aligns to holding temperatures below two degrees or aiming for 1.5 degree temperature rise. And we're seeing that from other investors like super funds as well. I think there will be a role for investors to play in deciding which projects meet those multiple objectives, reducing emissions, creating jobs, and obviously generating a return for their investments. I was stressing quite a lot, especially yesterday. That's why today I reached out to my grandma and we have to go on a hike. It, it really, really calmed me. And we did a bit of like bird watching as well. It just made me forget some of the stresses walking next to a river and just hearing that, just that, that white noise, that calms me a lot more. French philosopher Michel Foucault believes that resistance to power lies in the marginalised voices. That through their amplification, power is undermined, exposed and rendered fragile. To really challenge the status quo, it's our voices that need to be part of the transition. We, the people, need to realise our power as citizens. People focus too much on elections and 
oh, you've got to have this type of government to win or you've got to wait for an election to change a government to get something to happen. It's not true. Never has been true. It's a myth and it's a problematic myth that has meant that we have not achieved change when we could have. Where's the evidence? COVID-19 is the evidence. We had a government that was saying, oh, we can't increase New Start by $40 a week. They doubled it in an instant when it needed to happen. And that is because there was enough societal demand and community pressure from the unions, from the business sector, from individual people who were being impacted, that they knew that they couldn't not do that. If they didn't do that, they were going to be out on their bums. If we had all of those people who were forced onto Centrelink were suddenly having to continue standing in those lines that we saw to begin with, mm. were only getting half the amount and were suddenly unable to afford their rent and it's millions of people, we have no idea what that might have looked like. And that was enough to scare the government into doubling something that they wouldn't increase by 20% previously. Mm. And so the proof is in the pudding that if the whole of society demands something enough, we can get it regardless of who's in government. What we're trying to do is educate our members to exercise their democratic vote, if you like, rather than falling into line and voting whatever they, you might vote as a farmer because that's what your father did and that's what your grandfather did. Well, maybe things have changed and maybe you have to have another think about it. I still believe that if the communities had a better say in what was happening and we organised ourselves a bit better, then we would be able to make changes. There is something we can do right now that brings together investor and citizen power. Retirement savings. We don't cede control of how that money is invested when we hand it over. You know, we make a choice as to who we put it with and how they invest it on our behalf. You can definitely, and you probably should be anyway, engaging with your fund where your money is invested. Uh, I know it's not the most interesting topic in the world. If you think about saving the planet, the first thing you don't generally think of is I must talk to my super fund. But it is hugely important. More and more of us are putting our earnings into our super. Those funds under management are growing and um, they are becoming more influential across the economy. Ask the fund you're with, and if you don't think they're investing it in line with your personal values, switch to one that is. And, you know, I think that any fund would tell you that as an individual, we should all be engaging more with, with our own money. Through adopting alternatives to fossil fuels, we can have cleaner air, buckets and spades on beaches rather than masks and blankets. We can have better jobs and better lives. Society has the power to push, so what's stopping us? At a time when one million Australians are out of work, the prevailing myth of jobs versus the environment may have something to do with it. It's all about communities, families and jobs and, and life, really. And it doesn't matter if you're a farmer or a coal worker or work in an office in the city, you're still trying to provide a nice lifestyle for your family. And you, and you do that any way you can. The problem with some of the debate, I think, is that they talk about getting out of fossil fuels, which the coal miner recognises as the closing of his job or the shutting down of his lifestyle. And they don't talk about how to transition that coal miner out of a dirty coal mine into a clean, better job where he might live 20 years longer. And that's where the problem is. We need to provide a pathway for people to to make these changes. And that's partly what we're trying to do with farmers is, is show them how they can adapt and provide that pathway. A movement has emerged aiming to debunk the myth of jobs versus the environment through ensuring what is termed a just transition. Luke Skinner from the Climate Justice Union explains. In order to have a just transition, you need to have the people who are most impacts on site. If you're setting yourself up for a fight between the people who have kept the lights running and whose identity as hard-working blue-collar Aussies is 
part of the national myth of who we are and you're setting yourself up as a, a greenie movement from outside you can see what happens in a place like Queensland last year with the election. The coal workers are very strongly unionised and they fight for their rights um, and it's one of the reasons why coal has been hard to knock off in the domestic electricity supply is because those communities care about maintaining their, their standard of living and, and so they should and that's fair. But how to move this forward, the whole issue of transitioning the energy grid in WA is to have those communities on side with having a transition. So we want to work with people like that to make sure that they get a transition that works for them, that uses their skills, uses the local community's resources and that benefits everyone in their communities. The political obstruction comes from people fearing about their jobs and about their own livelihoods and their community and their identity. And if you come and attack them saying, you're destroying our planet, you're destroying the world, you're the problem, then you're not going to shift them, you're not going to move the situation and you're just going to get their backs up and they're going to fight you and we are not going to win. If we work with communities that are vulnerable to both the impacts of climate change but also the impacts of transition, and we talk to those communities, it's clear already amongst a lot of people in those communities that they know that the lifetime of fossil fuels is limited. Farmers know that the lifetime of the kind of agriculture they're doing at the moment, particularly in drought affected areas, is limited. They haven't got the resources at the moment. They haven't got the support that they need to make changes on their farms. Those communities where you have people reliant on coal jobs, there are not other jobs currently available for those people to shift into. So they're gonna fight tooth and nail for that coal industry to continue until there's an alternative that is actually being invested in. Not something that is just written on a paper that says you could have this, but actually mm. something that is happening in that community. I live right next to Footscray Park and there's the river, Maribyrnong River. I started doing uh, sunset walks. When it gets darker, like I just sit and watch ducks in the water. It's really peaceful. It's a really calming thing to do. And it's also like a way to track passage of time as well. Well, it, it represents the closing of a day. All around us, there are collectives, organisations and communities creating and implementing new ideas for a just and low-carbon economy. As global pressures like climate change and COVID-19 put pressure on the way things have always been, these new ideas have an opportunity to step up as a new way of being. Beyond the promises of visionary documents, they are showing tangible and viable alternatives. The Earthworker Collective, based in Victoria's La Trobe Valley, is doing just that. Breaking down that jobs versus environment debate was something that Earthworker was set up to do 20 years ago. Find ways to move beyond and demonstrate how false that jobs versus environment debate is. My name's Dan Mossil and I am involved with the Earthworker Energy Manufacturing Cooperative. I've been part of the project for around seven or eight years now because I believe in Earthworker's vision for a more sustainable and democratic and just economy. So Earthworker aims to set up a whole network or an ecosystem of worker and communally owned cooperative enterprises that do socially and environmentally useful work. We're manufacturing solar hot water products in the Latrobe Valley. So it's no coincidence that our first green manufacturing cooperative is set up here in the valley. The Latrobe Valley has long been known for its coal industry and is, is really where the question of 
climate change policy and this notion of a just transition for our energy sector comes to ground. Over two thirds of Victoria's electricity is produced here in the valley through burning brown coal, which is a highly polluting and, and relatively inefficient form of electricity generation. If we're going to deal with the climate crisis, we need to transition to cleaner forms of energy as a matter of urgency. The question is, how do we do that in a way that's just? For, for workers in this region that will be out of work as coal power stations close and for the communities and families that depend on the economy functioning the way that it does now. A key part of why we're here is to try and create tangible alternatives to coal industry employment and create alternative forms of energy production. The Valley has experienced an unjust transition in the past when the power industry was privatised in the late 80s and early 90s. Thousands of jobs were lost in a very short period of time. Yeah, utter social and economic devastation in this region. There was no sort of adequate compensation or, or transition support. And the Latrobe Valley remains a very economically, socially disadvantaged region to this day because of the impact of that transition. And that also means people are really wary of future big industrial or economic change. That's made conversations about climate change and, and economic transition here very difficult. People are still scarred and still see the evidence of it every day when you walk through the streets and see the empty shop fronts all through Morwell. So that's made it difficult and means that the idea of a just transition is an is extra important one here in the valley. Despite this, more and more people are recognising that change not only is inevitable, it's already happening. Well, after months of preparations, workers at the Hazelwood Power Station are tonight clocking off for the last time. They are heading off into an incredibly uncertain future. This was a job that many of them thought would last them another 10 years and happened that way, of course. This was a sudden shutdown and they don't believe they're going to be able to find another job here. The workers themselves, they're angry, they're disappointed and because they expected and wanted more of a transition for themselves. I've uh, worked about 36 years here, I'm 51 years of age uh, and it's very sad. They are sort of livelihood and to be pulled out underneath you with minimal notice is sort of pretty hard, you know, you've got family commitments and, you know, loans and mortgages and all the rest of it, so... If this is not going to be the last coal-fired power station to close down, and clearly it won't, that it can't happen this way again. The Hazelwood closure took many people by surprise. Hazelwood Power Station was an epicentre of much of Australia and particularly Victoria's climate and energy debate for the past decade, um, a real hotspot for angst around climate change and energy policy. Despite all that, you know, we learnt that ultimately it closed because it was a really old power station that <laughs> um, was well beyond its use-by date and wasn't viable to keep running. And yes, climate and energy policy contributed to the broader environment in which it existed, but the other power stations of the valley will also reach a time when their lives come to an end. And for your lawn power station, the next oldest power station in the valley, its time is almost up now. Many people who work out there and who live around here will tell you that the place is barely running at the moment. Much like Hazelwood was, it's just been kept going like an old car would be to try and get as many miles out of it as can be. We know that there are closures coming soon and yes, they are inevitable. And we know that the energy sector is changing a lot as well. We know that there are more and more renewables and storage coming on online and that will keep displacing older, less efficient forms of energy production. Change here is inevitable. This has been Lots of resistance and hesitance to accept that inevitability, but I think more and more people are realising a move away from coal is inevitable, and more and more people are realising the benefits of that too. We've been trying to get this factory off the ground for 
um, in, in different forms for over a decade, well before Hazelwood's closure was on the table. With that belief, that fear of being left in the lurch is a pretty powerful fear down here. And if people are presented with or given the opportunity to develop alternatives before padlocks on the gate, I think that will go a long way towards resolving some of the fear and hesitance and hostility to the inevitable changes that are coming down here. We're trying to create alternatives to work and business as usual too by creating a community worker-owned model. Worker cooperatives and other cooperatives have been shown around the world to be really resilient enterprises in the long run. They are really sensitive to and attentive to the communities and the environments in which they operate. They're not going to, five years down the track, send jobs offshore or pack up operations and and leave communities in the lurch. They're much more likely to support longer term and more equitable economic development. So I think making demands that governments invest ideally large amounts of money in green and and public service-based stimulus is really important, but also support for more cooperative and democratic forms of economic development is also really important in the wake of COVID-19. We are all required in the transition of our economy to one that is cleaner, healthier, stronger and more just. To avoid more drought, exacerbated bushfires, smoke-filled cities, ecosystem collapse, biodiversity loss, failed businesses and broken families, we need citizen action, investor action, ultimately pushing for government action. What our research found is that we need all governments as well as business and the community on board to reduce emissions. We find ourselves in a once in a century window of opportunity to resist and escape the status quo as governments find way to recover post-COVID. They will be spending money on our economic recovery. It is vital that this money is spent in ways that address the environmental, social and economic collapse that will come from climate change. We can have a much better lifestyle, we can have a cleaner environment and everybody can have jobs that don't kill them and we can do that if we stop looking backwards and we start moving forwards. And I'd hope the restructuring of of the economy that comes because of Corona might be an opportunity to say, right, well, we're going to move down this path, we're going to help communities develop their renewable energy sources. We're going to help rural communities look after the environment that they're living in. And we're going to provide more money for research and science and we're going to take it seriously. So I don't see why we shouldn't be having a sustainable recovery. And arguably, given the size of the likely debt that we that we will be holding for a number of years, uh, I think there's a lot of people now making the argument that we would have an intergenerational responsibility to be managing that debt in a way that does promote fairer, better outcomes for future generations. Let us push and amplify the alternatives, create resistance, a starting point for a new way. Oh, and don't forget, you can begin here. Moving your super out of companies that currently invest in fossil fuels and into something like Australian Ethical or Future Super, or if you're with an industry super fund, contact your super fund and ask them what their fossil-free plan is. Some of them have one, some of them don't. And if they don't have one, maybe the thing is to stay with who you are and pressure them to change. Because if we can get that money out of fossil fuels now, it's going to be, especially from the super sector, it's going to be really hard for them to try and get the investment on the other side of COVID. This piece was written, produced and composed by me. A huge thank you to everyone I spoke to throughout the making of this piece. 
Peter Holding, Luke Skinner, Emma Hurd, Petra Stock and Dan Mussel. Please see below for links to their organisations and publications, along with other references. Thanks to Kaya, Gabby and Anita for sharing their stories with me about their time outdoors during lockdown. This piece was made on Wurundjeri country. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their continuing connection to and care for country. The Climactic Collective. Collective.